and welcome to Tigers by the Fire, a podcast out of Holy Cross High School about World War II discussions and stories. Today, I'm here with Zach DeFratis. Hello. And Ashton Castro. Howdy. And we're going to be talking about John Bastilion, one of the early heroes of the Second World War. Before we get to that, I'm going to look at the war in the Pacific. Prior to Guadalcanal, we're looking at a half year of Japanese offensives that eventually get stopped at the Battle of Midway, which we talked about in our last podcast. The Battle of Guadalcanal is the first American land offensive of the war, and it's where John Bastilion is going to kind of make a name for himself. But before we get into that battle, I'd like to kind of highlight the differences between the war in the Pacific and the war in Europe. And so I'm going to let Zach start us off on kind of the differences between fighting in these two theaters. One of the main differences between the Pacific Theater of War and the Atlantic Theater of War is just the overall terrain and the way that it was fought the, in the Japanese front in the Pacific. It was mainly jungles and, uh, and like dense rivers and uh, foliage, whereas in the European uh, Theater of War, it was very open terrain, uh, mountainous. Uh, sure, there were forests, but it wasn't nearly as, um, I guess, harmful to the soldiers as it was in uh, the Pacific theater of war. Um, now you're looking at tropics versus a European climate. Even in Africa, it's more, you have mountainous terrain, flat terrain, and this allows for the U.S. Army to kind of do what it does best, right? Which is use tanks and mobilized infantry. The Pacific is fought on islands hundreds of miles, yeah. if not thousands of miles away from each other. And so every new battle in the Pacific has its own landing, has its own yep. D-Day. And so that makes each one unique in their own scenario, including unique terrain, like you said. Jungles, as we'll see on Guadalcanal, but as we'll see on Iwo Jima at the end of the podcast, that's a totally different you know, volcanic island. So yeah. And there's also that second enemy almost, too. It's not just the Japanese that they're fighting. They have to fight, like, Wild animals like alligators, crocodiles, like diseases like malaria, like there are things that are constantly uh, inhibiting the soldiers and like it makes it one of the grindiest and like gruesome uh, battles and wars that are, that are fought over too. One of the most underrated things or I guess under discussed items of, of the Pacific campaign is the inclusion of like, or I suppose lack of inclusion of diseases. Um, a lot of that sort of thing is overlooked and we just sort of focus on like the American deaths simply just at the hands of Japanese fire or maybe even items like booby traps or anything of that sort. But instead, disease is also like taking out a huge factor of our force just because you have these people who are jet lagged from constant landings. You have the constant fighting going on and it, the diseases just halt that. It makes you drained and just fatigued and it also adds to the potential ineffectiveness of these campaigns uh they might have found that also makes it a little bit different from europe aside from just the simple things like terrain and everything yeah the european theater uh for the most part there are obviously points in the european theater where it's not well supplied but by and large is a lot more supplied with food fresh food uh and, and more supplied with medicine and everything else when you get especially like we'll talk on guadalcanal in the initial Weeks of that, there are no resupply depots. There are no resupplying until the Navy wins a couple of naval engagements. So it creates, like you guys are saying, a second front, if you will. They have to deal with the elements, uh, which everyone has to deal with the elements, but they have to deal with this tropic kind of thing that gets you. You have people getting like rot on their feet. And so we get a lot of people out who get these huge sores that are, you know, inches wide on their feet. People who get dysentery. We have people who get sick stomach stuff. 
just runs rampant. And then, of course, malaria is another big one. So those are all big factors. So that, that's good stuff. So let's start talking about uh, Mr. Bassillon and someone wants to lead us off in his early life. Yeah, sure. So John Bassillon was born November 4th, 1916 in a small town in New Jersey. He made it back to his freshman year in high school where he became a high school dropout uh, at the age of 15. And he worked at a as a caddy at a golf course. Uh, eventually, through this work, he was like, he wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself. And I think you see this theme with a lot of like soldiers today, even where they want to see better opportunity in the military because their uh, current social status isn't like probably where they wanted it to be. So he joins the army initially in 1934 and is in there for about four years, three years uh, until 1937, where eventually he moves to the Marine Corps in uh, 1940. I think you bring up a good point that a lot of times we think of people enlisting right after Pearl Harbor, but there were a lot of Americans, particularly to the middle of the 30s in the midst of the Great Depression, that do try and join the military. It's a great escape for people, especially in these these areas that are stricken with the, the Depression. And so he's, he definitely represents one of them. Uh, and it also you know gives people purpose and everything else. And so it's, it's a good thing. I think you brought that up. In the Marine Corps, he is a gunnery sergeant. Um, He's an NCO. There's not much to really say here. We can really just jump, uh, I mean, straight into Guadalcanal. I mean, he's stationed there pretty early on in his career as a Marine, August 7th, uh, 1942. And, um, I mean, this is one of the more interesting battles. Do you want to give some context on the battle, Ashton? Yeah. So Guadalcanal is possibly one of the first turning points of the war in which Japan is no longer doing these offensive attacks, but instead, in the very beginning, it's a defensive attack. Um, the first essential phase of Guadalcanal is the American bombings of the land. Uh, and this is essentially where we take it. And there's essentially no Japanese defense once we actually attack it. We drop these 1,000-pound bombs on the base itself, and there's a lot of destruction, and it's a pretty big success. The thing that comes after it, though, is when the Japanese try to reclaim the island, and there's a naval engagement followed by this entire landing of Japanese soldiers onto our already stationed American soldiers. There is a lot of grueling fighting. It's a lot of just a stalemate as we're defending against these end, uh, waveless and endless waves of Japanese soldiers. The naval, uh, the naval battles go essentially terrible for the U.S. Uh, the USS Enterprise is, I believe, bombed four or five times within a single day, and the actual engagement is sort of like a extended, longer-than-necessary uh, battle. And it's kind of like this grueling part where it's a back-and-forth in between the American forces and the Japanese forces. And, and to your point, I think at the beginning of the battle, it's not very clear Americans are going to win yeah. because the Japanese are still fairly dominant at sea. We haven't had the rebuilding of our Navy completed by this point, 1942. Uh, the Solomon Islands are important because they represent kind of the entranceway into Australian waters. And so the Japanese at this point have been pushed out of the Coral Sea, but the Solomons that in that strait right there is going to represent that, that point. And so like you guys, like Ashton was saying – it is kind of a turning point in the sense that prior to this on land, we had pretty much lost most major engagements yeah. against the yeah. Japanese. And on this one, while we do suffer casualties, it's an elongated fight. It's also very indicative of the Pacific theater as a whole. Nothing in the Pacific happens quickly. It's always these these big fights yep. over places that no one's ever heard of, like Guadalcanal. <laughs> the Battle of Midway is that is that turning point where we see – America is now on the offense, and this is our first engagement with uh, Japan with like 
ground troops on that battle. And you can kind of see some of the exploits uh, that the soldiers are able to make here. It's a very grueling, grinding battle. For John Bassoulon, if you don't mind, I can kind of jump into that. He receives the Medal of Honor in this battle. He has to command these two machine gun nests on Henderson Field. And like for two days, two nights, he has to hold off 3,000 Japanese soldiers that are just hammering this with waves. And the way that these uh, two machine gun nests are stationed is he has to sort of, they're not entrenched positions, so he can't just use the cover of the trenches to each one. He has to actually escape out of their, uh, their nest with a gun basically on his wrist and like make his way to each uh, machine gun nest, supplying them with. One thing that I want to revisit really quickly is just like the Japanese at this point when they're uh, attacking, they're already experienced with attacking us and their entire campaign up to this point. And the Americans have more or less only been defending. John Bastion was part of the Philippines. So there might be even a personal vendetta you can make. But argumentatively, we don't really have the experience of offensive attacks. And then yeah. it transfers over to a defensive uh, attack. Which, I, But aside from like midway, we're sort of lacking in experience. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the U.S. Army has virtually no real combat experience compared to a Japanese army where some of the people involved in this had fought in China for, at this point now, four years, five years, yeah. uh, even longer if you count Manchuria. Some of them have fought in Vietnam. Some of them have fought in various other islands. And so, yeah, a lot of these soldiers have very little combat experience. It's a very good point. And to that point, you know, I think you know the lack of America being on the offensive. I don't know if it is as big of a deal because this is about the airfield right now, right? They need yeah. to capture this airfield because that that'll give them the availability of bombings further sure. on in the solid. Major tactical advantage, correct? Um, and to your point, Zach, uh, at Henderson Field, right? Uh, what you were talking about with him with the the machine gun, right? These machine gun barrels get super, super hot and you yeah. have to transport it, but he didn't have his glove, right? There's a big mitt that you yep. put on your arm to, to protect it from the heat. And so he didn't have it, but he needed to move it. So he picked it up and put it on his arm and it smoldered his skin. That, his skin. that alone is indicative of sort of the grinding and grueling process that these soldiers went through. And you have to keep in mind these Marines, I think we said this earlier, they're not given the proper equipment that they need. They're still using like 1903 Springfields, they're using uh, like equipment that they have isn't really proper for the terrain that they're using because they don't have this experience fighting. One of the things that I think makes this particular engagement so grueling is, like I said this before, he's there for two days and two nights, like just up constantly fighting. Like that toll alone is huge on a person. And wave after wave of yeah, just endless fire. So him and his, and his two machine gun units was like 16 people, I think, after the battle three of them were left alive, which is, which like, I also, again, shows like the amount of heavy casualties that Marines uh, face in this battle alone. And aside from just the grueling, endless fire uh, at the waves of Japanese soldiers, which almost was perceivably endless to them, they also run out of am ammunition in a bit of it, which requires John Bastion to do his, probably one of the most heroic traits and run am ammunition in between, which yeah. during that, it sort of def uh, shows a last defense in which he's using a M1911 and a machete. Yeah. In order yes. to hold off these yes. Japanese waves. Yeah, he is alone in the thick of the brush, and that is one of the and I and like I mean, there's no question as to why he shouldn't have the Medal of Honor. Like that alone is like just so heroic, so brave. He's holding down these two machine down gun positions. Two machine gun positions basically like by himself, the other three or whatever guys have to stay there holding it down. Like he is the bridge between these guys, the lifeline. So is a very heroic man. He manages to hold off 
uh, and kill about 38 soldiers. Um, yeah, he's attributed battle. with 38 kills. Although, this count's not really important because he's facing off against 3,000 Japanese yeah, soldiers. Sure. It's yeah. the entire second division. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important to recognize, too, is in a lot of the guys who end up winning Congressional Medal of Honors usually talk about this, especially if they win it while they're alive, because most people get it after they're dead, is that while what they did is tremendous, and he said this, I know, in his later, uh, his little tours after this to raise money, a lot of his friends died, and they were just as heroic. It's just sometimes circumstance happens, and a mortar shell falls on you. And that, I think, is really one of the testaments. And so his bravery, you know, there's obviously dozens of other people doing similar things. Yeah. And he just, he survived, right? And he kept doing it and kept going. And he obviously had this, you know, fortitude to kind of keep pushing himself. And that's what, you know, kind of really made a difference at Henderson Field. And they, they, they stave off this massive attack. Yeah. And the, the stories of this attack eventually make its way to the public and he becomes this huge national figure and he's a, he's a celebrity almost. And that's, and when he gets his Medal of Honor, they want to take him out of the fight and use him sort of for propaganda. And I mean, I'm not sure that's a, yeah, propaganda. Yeah, they use it for propaganda to buy the right term. more bonds, all right, to support the war effort. And yeah. that is, while he's absolutely miserable in this time, it's still an important part to talk about because war bonds are important for the military. And we're no, the, the U.S. government effort. borrows money yeah. from itself, Yeah, right? We borrow money from the citizens by selling bonds, and this helps pay for the war. Yep. His fame really comes about with his war bond tour, because as he returns back to the United States and the homeland, essentially the United States inflates his image in order to give him basically a legendary status in order to encourage people to start spending money and buying war bonds. He does these tours, he's in parades in his hometown. He's also sponsored in Life magazine, even though it's a small little town in New Jersey. Like it, it it's completely inflated and it's propaganda piece. It's very, I mean, it's very helpful that you can't. I mean, he even like. He meets all these different people, rich people. He sort of becomes uh, in, like, I guess encapsulated in all this. I think he even has a meeting with the Freemasons, which I thought was an interesting quid bit, even. Um, uh, during his war bond tour, he meets, uh, thanks, Ashton, he meets his wife, Lena May, who was a sergeant in the Marine Corps, which I think was very interesting. And they have their honeymoon, but eventually, I mean, he misses, like, a good part of the war. Like, he's there at the beginning, and... Pretty much for the rest of the war, he's out selling war bonds and he, he gets like, he, he has a longing to be with his troops and his men. So after like that famous quote comes from, I need to be with my boys. Uh, so he's later stationed on Iwo Jima, uh, Red Beach too, I get, I believe. Yeah. And because he's sort of this hero or legend as propagated by the media and the government, uh, he's actually getting these requests. He's putting these requests out in order to be deployed again. Uh, and he gets denied time after time just because he's one of these public figures, which is essential to the war effort, uh, which is kind of odd when you think about it at the moment, because you make your name fighting as a Marine, and then you're prevented from being able to be a Marine. Yeah, and I think the rationale behind the decisions on that is that, you know, he's more important to the war effort raising money. Him being in random island in the Pacific and getting shot at doesn't really make a huge difference in the war. Him dying at Random Island won't make a huge difference in the war in the big scheme of things. Yeah. It's really his ability to raise money. You know, that's how the U.S. government values it. Now, obviously, it's 
kind of what makes him pretty special is that, you know, he really fights and fights and fights to get back into uh, the fray. It's almost like I, I kind of laugh at this. It's like the movie uh, Captain America kind of rips off the plot of his life where like yeah. he's yeah. on these little tours and he's so mad he just wants to go fight. And, and that's how he is. He just wants to go there. And it's not just because his boys are there. I think it's because he also lost people at Guadalcanal and he feels like, you know, he's in some way. Oh, for sure. He, he, died, he, he feels like luxury. he needs to. I guess, avenge those guys. Sort of the importance of Iwo Jima in and of itself is that it's one of like the major, major last battles of the war before surrender of the Japanese art, uh, Japanese military due to the atomic bombs at Iwo Jima. Yes. Yeah, so, so Iwo Jima uh, starts in, really the initial phases of Iwo Jima start January in February of 1945. And yeah. it is on the path to Japan. It's going to set up airfields to bomb the Japanese manufacturing. Uh, Iwo Jima is a small little speck of earth. It's not very big. <laughs> it's volcanic. It's been bombed to oblivion. We bomb it for months prior to the actual landed invasion. And the thing about Iwo Jima that makes it so horrific is that it is like a, it's like an anthill, right? It, there, Mount Sarabachi has tunnels all throughout it. Underneath on the mainland, there's tunnels everywhere. And as our soldiers get up and, and when they land on Iwo Jima, it's going to be very similar to a couple other battles that we'll talk about later in the year. But they're going to fight for feet initially, yeah. not 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 miles or anything like that. They're going that to fight theme for of, feet. Of the terrain uh, working against them is there as well. So he's he's there on Red Beach too, and one of the first things that he does when he gets on the beach is he he notices that his that well, he doesn't notice he he's aware that his um that his men are being held down by this machine gun nest and like sort of riding that wave of heroism he takes out the machine gun nest by himself and leads his troops. Like it's almost, it's almost like reading a comic book. It's like a John Wayne movie. Yeah. It's like a John Wayne. Like this guy is like, just like, Oh, there's a problem. Let's fix it. Goes to that uh, machine gun nest, takes out the machine gun nest by himself and moves on to the next thing. What's the next thing? There's a tank caught in a minefield. Oh, we got to rescue the tank. So he by himself goes to the tank, helps them out of the minefield. And he's like doing all these like, Next thing after the next thing after the next thing, and he sort of like has this mentality of like live by the sword, die by the sword. And eventually, uh, with his men, he's going back and forth. And eventually, uh, through this, he gets uh, hit in his right groin, I believe, and his neck uh, by small arms fire, and he uh, dies on the beach there. There's actually two major uh, interpretations of how he dies. Uh, I believe one author put it like the way that Zach just mentioned, but then also there's the propagation of the story in which he is killed by a um, by artillery. Yeah. Um, and I think the artillery uh, aspect kind of adds to his whole legendary hero status simply because it is something that you can't necessarily control. It's the poetic, you don't cure your death. So, I mean, for his, his, hero, his heroism on the battle, he gets the Purple Heart and the uh, Navy Cross, which is like the second highest award you can get in the Navy. I guess you can't get a second Medal of Honor in the military. No, and, and, but, um, and I think... Sometimes, like the awards and everything, kind of underscore, yeah, just the 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 like the heroism that that happens, and it's like we, we've talked about this in class and some of the other podcasts last year, and then the first one this year. These guys, when they fight, right, a lot of times they fight for survival, they fight for each other, and, and that's really like the real heroic stuff. Yeah, and he represented at that time just this big symbol of like American, you know, military prowess. And the fact that he dies at Iwo Jima, it, it does show you 
how grueling the Pacific theater was. Cause here's this guy who is the, you know, poster child of America in 1942 and 43, but he is going to die just like any other yeah, draft. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing about war. Um, and we, and we talked, uh, Zach and I were talking about just different relatives who served in World War II and you hear stories and you just never know. And that's, I think, the scariest part about these is they never know when they're going to get hit, especially at places like Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, where you have snipers and everything else. And and it shows you kind of the pure chaotic uh, theme of this. Cash, Ashton, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I just want to describe, like, sort of what it took in order to do these actions that he does. Um, Iwo Jima is the battleground in which some of the most horrific scenes in the entire war take place. It's genuinely one of probably the most terrifying things to actually like put yourself in mentally so if you were to say be in john bastilion's shoes and you understand that at any time you can be hit by a sniper hit by artillery hit by just the rapid machine gun fire whether it be friendly fire or enemy fire everything about this everything that could go wrong for a singular person could definitely go i'd go wrong at iwo jima it is probably one of the most disheartening things to read about or just learn about in general and the fact that he had the courage to free a random tank in a minefield or take out this machine gun nest. It's just it. Mm-hmm. It represents the absolute fortitude of this man. Yeah, because putting yourself back in that situation, depictions of it just look absolutely terrifying. What I wanted to point out again, I mean, I think we, de- we mentioned this before uh, when we were starting the podcast, is like the importance of learning about the individual accounts of the war. Um, it it humanizes it almost for you, like. You, you learn about these grandiose battles, like the Battle of the Bulge or like D-Day landings, and you sort of miss out on the, hu- the individual human experiences of the war. So I think it's important that we never sort of shy away and from that aspect of it, because it's definitely, it, it lets you guess, I guess it lets you have a broader uh, understanding of what these people went through. Yeah, and that's usually the best part about looking at any really good historical book on World War II is it has a lot of like firsthand accounts. And so I think that's really something that, you know, this was a a good idea from you guys because it obviously highlights someone that's, I think, really important and legendary amongst Marine circles, too. Yeah. And and it's it's interesting because when the Pacific came out, when it first came out, you know, a lot of people who were not as familiar with him anymore because obviously it's been years and people had to like fact check to see if this was a real person because of the things he did. And I think to your point, Ashton. I don't think it's not just how he reacts in the moment, because I think a lot of people react in the moment. It's the fact that he went through this horrible scene at Guadalcanal and then wanted to go back again. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that shows a lot about who he, who he was as a person. Yeah. The war in the Pacific is more or less kind of like a, an understated uh, event in like pop culture and media. Um, so I think just recognizing the actions that take place here is really important. So he dies in Iwo Jima. Um, I think, there are like two main things that I wanted to point out after his death. Uh, his wife, Lena May, uh, Basilion, she remained loyal for the rest of her life. She didn't remarry. Uh, and they were only married for like a few months, which is, which is crazy to me. Like she didn't, you know, but like that was, that's takes dedication on her part. And also the town that he lives in, New Jersey, they actually have a day dedicated to him, uh, which I think is, it's good because his memory and his legacy lives on through that town in New Jersey. So I think that's a good like way of sort of remembering him is having that day for him. And also that show the Pacific sort of immortalized him. Oh yeah. Which is important. The story of uh, John Bastion 
I think is actually really important just because it details two major points of the war. You have the turning point in which it's the first Japanese defense and American offense uh, at Guadalcanal, and then you have Iwo Jima, in which it's one of the final conclusive battles of the island hopping campaign. It's February, and I believe we're out by June. And it just details sort of like how much the war went from the uncertain uh, Guadalcanal battle and then Iwo Jima. I mean, at this point, Japanese soldiers are committing suicide in mass graves inside of the uh, inside of their fortifications. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a terrible point in which nobody has hope at this point. I mean, sorry, not nobody has hope, but it's terrible. I mean, it's a disheartening yeah. item. I mean, you have a hero who ends up dying just like everybody else, and then you have all these unseen heroes instead of dying like everybody else. His life is World War II. I mean, he, he is there at the beginning, and he dies at the end. And I think, like, that's sort of that warrior mentality almost that he sort of embodied. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and it, it, I think you guys are both kind of right. It does highlight the whole elongated play out of the war, right? Very beginning, he's involved. First major battle, like Guadalcanal, right? They weren't resupplied. The Navy was struggling at the time. In Iwo Jima, there's 60 ships surrounding that island. The Japanese can't get anything in that island anymore. And so it's supply overload right they have everything they need and the fighting is just as intense because the enemy is just as ruthless and just as ruthless as we are both sides have to fight a ruthless war yeah and like ashton said mass suicides in mount Sarabachi, people who do bonsai charges right where they charge out uh, to force americans to shoot them so they die in battle so these are very good stories i think to learn and it kind of teaches you about the severity of world war ii well, thanks, Coach, for having us in here for this podcast. I really enjoyed talking about him as a personal hero of mine. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I, I think that kind of wraps up our podcast today on John Bastillon uh, and the importance of remembering him and people like him in the war. So I just want to thank both of you guys, uh, Ashton and Zach, for being here. Uh, yeah, if you no have problem. anything else you want to say? Uh, no? Death? I'm satisfied. Death is indiscriminatory. It doesn't matter if you're a hero, a coward, a villain, or anything like that. Everybody dies. and that's the sort of poetic item about war. It's indiscriminatory. So thank you guys. I uh, appreciate it. And this was Tigers by the Fire, Season 2, Episode 2 on John Bastille.